You're listening to the Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. Hello and welcome to the Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. This is Simonetta Mignano, and I'm here with Dr. Tony Biscop, who's partnering with us on this Togetherings series. Hi, Tony. Hi. The Togetherings are conversations presented in a series of three episodes, each one focusing on a different theme explored by Alaskan perspectives. Today is the third conversation of this series on structural racism, and this episode is about structural racism in education. We're recording at the Outnor Studio in Anchorage on the traditional land of the Denana people. As I mentioned, Dr. Tony Biscop is partnering with us on this Togethering series. And I wonder, Tony, would you like to say something about yourself? Yeah, um, thanks. So it's really great to be here. I'm super excited about our guest today. And, um, you know, this basically uh, justice issues, issues around equality, uh, racism, sexism have been an interest of mine for decades, I can say. And um, just from personal experience with around them and uh, also growing up in poverty, being um, one of the first people in my family to go to college. Um, Education is a way to empower people, but uh, when it's um, fundamentally dysfunctional, then that also becomes an issue. So uh, I'm really, really excited to hear from our guests today. To talk about structural racism in education, we have three guests connected with us today, Danielle Kim, Jay Sean Hudson, and Madison Shang. We usually start by asking our guests, what is your experience or your personal connection with the with today's topic? I'm, I'm Madison Zhang. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and they, them, theirs. And my connection to this topic is I am a student in, in higher education, and I also graduated from Bartlett High School, growing up on the east side of Anchorage, where my family did fall at the poverty line, and many of my friends did as well. I was able to see the differences in the city, where as my friends that went to South High School or, or Diamond might not share the same experiences that us on the the east side of Anchorage had. I'm a Hmong American. My I'm a I'm a first generation American as well, and. I hold close to that and have obviously been impacted both directly and indirectly by racism in education. I mean, uh, likewise uh, to Madison, my name is Jay Sean Hudson. And, um, you know, I had the pleasure of graduating from uh, Bartlett High School as well, which is one of the most diverse schools in the nation, which is amazing. But, um, I mean, my experience from Madison differs because, you know, fortunately I never had that personal racism moment or personal interaction with racism. However, I, I also went through kind of the honors classes and the AP classes and the higher up classes and just being able to see that there weren't many people that kind of looked like me or (laughs) um, not necessarily shared my thought process, but shared my experiences, shared kind of like that walk of life that I've been from, you know, again, knowing that we're on the east side of Anchorage, it was always kind of perplexing, you know, how can, how can we live around here? How can this be my surroundings? Yeah, when I'm in class, I'm not in class with anyone that kind of shares my struggles or anything of that nature. Another reason why I feel like I can contribute to this podcast and to kind of this cause so well is because, you know, it's funny, I was born in Albany, Georgia, so I wasn't born here. However, I was pretty much raised in Anchorage, you know, and so to see kind of the contrast between my, you know, native kind of area where I was from and then to be here and to see basically, you know, how students are kind of instructed and how people go about their lives and basically just kind of the makeup of classrooms has definitely changed my opinion on a lot of things and 
you know, I think allowed me to be able to contribute to this podcast. All right. Well, um, well my name is Danielle Kemp, and uh, my connection to today's topic, uh, oh, I'm a teacher. I teach um, music in the, uh, the Anchorage School District. Right now, I'm teaching elementary uh, music, um, but I mean, I can teach, you know, all the way up to uh, 12th grade uh, band. My connection as well, uh, uh, my mother was a teacher for 37 years, and, you know, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from her, um, from what I observed, you know, as a kid growing up. And I just, uh, just bringing my life experiences to the educational table in general. Thank you guys so much. This is, um, yeah, it, it's really great. I mean, each one of you brings very unique uh, experiences to this conversation. Um, is there a story about racism in education or in general that you would like to share? And it could be something you observed, something you experienced, or something that someone else has has told you about? So I, I know a few like incidences um, of racism in school. Uh, I'm not going to share any names. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> At least uh, unless it's me. All right. Yeah. But uh, I'm not going to share any names, but I'll, I'll tell you one that was kind of recent, to be honest with you. That was a, a kiddo. Uh, and I got this story from, uh, a friend of mine who who just told me about it, and I had to verify it that it actually happened. This high school student here in the ASD was, I guess, he was um, sleeping on the Zoom, <laughs> right? Uh, um, and the teacher uh, didn't like that. Wh- whatever the reason was, you know, the teacher thought um, it was prudent to call the, the APD on this student um, for sleeping. Mm. Now, whether this per- this student had been sleeping before and made it a habit of sleeping during Zoom, I don't know. But this teacher, this white teacher called the, the APD, knocked on, the, on that family's door and said, hey, you know, we're APD here, you know, we're here to, you know, say, hey, your student was, you know, sleeping and you need to, um, you know, get them up and, and please don't make that happen again. Now, of course, it was innocent enough looking from one perspective. You know, I'm a, I'm a Star Wars fan, so I, I love the phrase from a certain point of view. Um, so from a certain point of view, that was perfectly innocent just to call. But that, that, that was, to me, from my point of view, that was a racist move. And I say it like this, is that black folks for a long time uh, have been targets of police violence. Right. And APD, their police, Anchorage Police Department. Now, this one did not end in violence. It just ended, you know, uh, with the police, you know, hey, wake up. But there are so many incidences where this could have happened and it has happened. Mm -hmm. Folks will call the police on black folks, either with innocent intentions or with ill intentions. Mm -hmm. And racism to most most people's uh, edification ain't always about intentions. It's about impact and and what actually happens on at the at the end a an action right. It's like I didn't mean for that to happen, but it did mm-hmm. right. So 
You got this woman calling about the police. You know, hey, my, the student sleeping. Anything could have happened there. You know, a uh, person of color in the police interaction. So whether she believed it or you know or not, that was very racist to do. To be honest with you, and you could have called a school school counselor or anybody. Right. Or the parents. On, or you could have called yeah. a parent. <laughs> I confirmed that the parent didn't get a call. They, they, you know, it's like, no, I did the school didn't call me or anything, uh, you know, about, you know, my son sleeping in class. Uh, that would have been the first move. Nope. Call the APD. I'm the co-chair of the education committee for the Alaska black caucus. Mm-hmm. One of our missions is to try to get rid of SROs in school, which mm-hmm. is school resource officers, they're basically police officers in the school. All right. And that right there, that little happening, and 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 it was just maybe a, a few weeks ago, and that was online, like, you know, because the online school. Imagine the harassment and issues that kids of color go through mm-hmm. when they're not online. The chances of something bad happening to kids of color is 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 always way higher than it is to a white kid. Mm-hmm. That's just one incident of That's racism, great, but yeah. I see it. I see racism in the policy. Like I'm sitting here tweaking, you know, board policy. I see it in the policy. I see it in the black and white. It's mm. baked, built into the system in every system. And it's not an education, but we're talking about education. So mm-hmm. it's baked into the system. If you want me to go into detail about examples <laughs> of racism in the system, we're going to need more than an hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to need way more than an hour to just give you examples. But like, I got a whole list of stuff and this is just a little bit of stuff that I have to do today of like recognizing racism in our school board policy. That's not even administration. That's just school board. And this is just one little section. Mm. So yeah, there's work to do. So that story is so powerful actually, Mr. Kemp. Because it relates to something that happened kind of early around in my neighborhood, actually. And so, you know, I'm not going to try to get into too many details or because, again, this isn't my personal story, but this is something that happened in my neighborhood, literally right outside my door. Again, I don't know the specifics and I can't really get into those. However, I don't live in a very, um, how do I say this? I don't live on the south side. Like I said before, I live on the east side of Anchorage, but my neighborhood is it's not gated in, in terms of like, you have to scan a card to get in, but my neighborhood is pretty like fenced off. Right. Like, so I live in a spot that's kind of like, you know, unless you live over here, you're not really going to come over here. There's no parks or anything over here. It's like a, you know, it's a duplex or whatever, you know, houses are connected. So, you know, it's a pretty, pretty tight knit kind of community. And so we had some neighbors move in. I want to say it was during the summer. I want to say it was about the middle of the summer because I do like, Racial tensions were already high with uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and a couple other things that had went on. And so, you know, I was just sitting and I was scrolling on Facebook and everything. And I saw this this story and I was like, that looks like my mailbox. Like, <laughs> like what is that? And so I looked into it and apparently there was a car and the dude, you know, the male I was driving, he was African-American. He was driving and he was one of the neighbors who had just recently moved in over here. Yeah. However, his car was kind of, you know, it was beat up. It, it wasn't it wasn't the best thing, but it wasn't something that if you look at doesn't yeah. qualify you to live over here. Mm-hmm. And so he was driving over here, you know, he was parking, he was pulling in his garage and all that. 
And as he's doing that, there's this lady who's walking pot, who's walking past and she's recording and she's like, you know, yelling at him and stuff like that. Like, Hey, like, why are you over here? Like this, you know what I'm saying? Like basically saying you don't, be- you don't belong over here. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I said your story is so powerful is because that illustrates to me the concept that, you know, at sometimes civilians believe that they have the authority to kind of police their own communities and police basically, you know, decide, Hey, do you belong over here? Do you belong over here? Whatever, whatever. And I understand the concept. Like I, I, like you said before, I understand through one perspective, that's okay. Like I'm all for policing your community. Yeah. Like, you know, those that live in the community, you know, you have a say over not who lives in your community, but you know, you want to make sure your family's safe and all that. I understand that. But again, from seeing it, through, you know, the lens of everything that was going on at that time, that was an African-American male who had just moved into this neighborhood. You know, like, he lives here. And you took him out of his comfort zone just because of of his financial situation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, Madison, I think you can relate to this, too. It's not just a, you know, it's a black and white thing for sure. But I've seen this done with kind of, you know, Asian-American students at school and stuff like that. And not. Not purposely, but, you know, I've still seen it done. So it it leads me to kind of question, like, what gives someone the the nerve to do something like that? You know what I mean? It's just weird to me, and I never really understood it. And it's such a crazy thing because, like I said, this literally happened in my backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't think it would happen until you see it, until you bear witness to it. And fortunately, I wasn't home at the moment or anything like that. But then just going through Facebook and seeing that from my neighbor's perspective, and seeing that, like, wow, like, if I was home, I could have witnessed that. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's one of those life-changing things, and it's one of those moments that really has you sitting there and you kind of question, like, like, you know, what am I doing in this kind of, <laughs> in this mm-hmm. you know, tumultuous time? Like, what am I doing? Like, what, mm-hmm. could that have happened to me? Could that have been me? What if that was me? You know what I mean? Yeah, Jayshawn, you're you know, what you speak about belonging is something that deeply resonates with me. And, you know, it's unfortunate that you are right, that I do share the same sentiment as an Asian American. And uh, I was, I was thinking about my, you know, like radicalization and how the first moment that I realized that racism was a thing was in elementary school when uh, a friend and I were the last two on the bus. And in, in Anchorage, the Hmong population falls disproportionately at or below the poverty line. And as, as we're in the bus, we, you know, we live in the same neighborhood. He goes, Madison, you're Hmong. Why don't you live in a trailer? And I'm like eight years old. So I have no idea how to respond to this, like logistically. But it, it isn't until years later that, like that moment has always sat with me. And when it first happened, I wasn't sure why because I didn't know what it was. Basically, what he was telling me is that I don't belong in a house. I don't belong in this neighborhood, but rather my life should be confined to the rows of a trailer park. You know, there's just no way to really respond to that adequately as, you know, me being a 19-year-old now, let alone, you know, 11 years ago. So that was the first moment that I realized that my belonging will always be questioned in society. Gosh, there's so much um, in what everyone has said so far, but I'm, I'm taking notes about things I wanted to uh, ask about. So, you know, I, 
uh, Madison, you said when you first became radicalized, but I, I just, and this is something that's come up for me again and again and again over the years. Like, why is the notion that we're equal, that we deserve equity radical? Why is that radical? It seems like inequality and hate is the baseline. Mm -hmm. And that's deeply unfortunate. But as, you know, Daniel was saying, it's integrated into the system, not just like the threads in the tapestry. It is the fabric itself in, in our society. And so anything that steers away from that, when we choose love, when we choose kindness, when we choose anti-racism, unfortunately that is radical because it differs from the norm and it works to, you know, like we're discussing today, dismantle the very mm -hmm. institutional intricacies of the system that is created and is out to get us. Yeah. Um, just a, an example of, of how racism is, 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 um, is integrated, is, is baked into the system. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to use that term, mm -hmm. right? And how racism is baked into the system. You think about how someone is uh could like like a racist an outright racist like trump mm -hmm. could get elected when more people don't vote for him is because of an outdated system called the electoral college which is baked into our actual constitution right it is an outdated um form of you can call it democracy but it's it's not it's semi-democratic mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um in that it was originally used as a form of uh, a, like in a, a way to c compromise with Southern states who had more slave population than they did uh, free whites mm -hmm. uh, or land owning whites. So in, in order to compensate, there were slaves were given the designation of three fifths of a human being. Mm -hmm. Right. And are able to be counted in the electoral college as three fifths of a human in order to, get more uh, representation in the South, right? And so, uh, you know, that's the reason why we have the Electoral College um, is is because of um, a racist ideology. And my it's my humble opinion that I don't think that, you know, the founders even thought that uh, slavery would actually uh, end. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put it in the Constitution, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and then there's still some vestiges. Matter of fact, I think it was some state, maybe Illinois or some other state that maybe Kansas, maybe Nebraska, one of those states in the Midwest where uh, they just now outlawed slavery by by imprisonment. Because oh, that yeah, was the I catch. saw that. Yeah, that was the catch. And that is once yeah. again baked into the system. Yeah. Right. Slavery by imprisonment that you could actually do that. And, you know, I. I'm not too sure, but I think you still can. <laughs> you know, that's the one catch, which is so crazy. That's just one example. There are many examples. I keep going back. I got examples to share if you, <laughs> you want to go over them. I think the thing that's always struck me is kind of, like everyone said, like it's bewildering, but it's thread into the system. So it's not really something you should be surprised about. Um, so I was always raised, you know, to be a guy of faith, you know what I'm saying? Believe, 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 you know, believe in yourself, believe in all those things. But at some point, it kind of, so let me preface this. I want to be an educator. 
I want to be a history educator because I want to inspire those to, yeah, I want want people to learn about their history, learn what you're from, basically learn what you came from and learn why you're here and the process of, you know, how much you can change. And the thing that I've always thought was, you know, that I never thought about until my senior year, to be honest with you, is I don't know too many black educators. You know, I don't know specifically in our school system besides, you know, and he was my football coach, but besides our librarian. Mr. Boot, I don't know too many, you know, black male figures in mm. schools. And the crazy thing is, I don't think that's an accident. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I'm not saying that the system, you know, the system is built a certain way. But I think that, you know, having all the, you know, having students who are minority figures and having them grow up and not see any minority kind of leadership or representation in these fields it's not only is it alarming, but I don't think that's an accident. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that's, you know what I mean? And it's always been kind of hurtful to me because it's like, you know, kind of what everyone else has said, how do you find that sense of belonging when no one, you know what I mean? Like, I don't. Jay Sean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) It is no accident. Um, Recently I began to engage with the Anchorage school district and the state of Alaska about, recruitment and retention of uh, teachers of color and I found something interesting out uh, from one of the school board members um, Margot Bellamy she told me that it was about 20 years ago 20 something odd years ago that um, affirmative action was done away with in Mm. in Anchorage uh, school district and I've been you know trying to get some information on statistics on teachers of color going back like 30 or 40 years so that I can see if there was actually some sort of um, uh, correlation there with Mm -hmm. when they got rid of affirmative action and about 85 plus percent of the teachers in the district and roughly the state too are white and which is the exact opposite almost of the population of our student uh, Mm. demographics which in ASD, half our students are students of color, mm. with the majority being Native Alaskan. Um, in the state of Alaska, the majority are students of color, with the majority being um, uh, Native Alaskan. Native Alaskan, that is the biggest disparity mm-hmm. when you're talking about uh, inequity in uh, the teacher demographic representation. Native Alaskan population represents about 25 to 30% of Anchorage school district kids. Mm. Yet they let Our, represent less than 1% of the teacher population. Wow. That's the, the biggest gap, wow. right? Like, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, to make it, um, that insult to in, injury, we, uh, the Anchorage school district had, and I, I, I believe they still have, but I haven't found no evidence that um, in elementary school, they're supposed to devote an entire semester to um, Alaska Native history. But you got like less than 1% of the teachers are, you know, it would just, it would help. Yeah. Right. Just to um, have some teachers representing that culture, especially in elementary, um, but you don't see it. So, yeah, you are not wrong, Jay Sean. Um, <laughs> And, you know, there I hear it all the time, even from some school board members, mm-hmm. and those school board members know who they are who always resistant to change, <laughs> all right? 
they 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 know my voice personally. But I can tell you, uh, you know, they'll say, "Well, we just need to. Um, we don't need to, you know, change so quickly, you know." Or there's nothing wrong. Think about it. We've had we've had schools that have had all white teachers for a long, long, long time, and there's nothing wrong with that. I went to historically black college, Jackson State University. All my professors when I grew up wow. were black, right? I ended up okay, pretty good, I think. Uh, <laughs> there are some schools in Atlanta with almost a whole school, mm-hmm. black teachers and black administrators. Those kids are like excelling everywhere. So I would tell them, you know, really, there's nothing wrong with having an all black administration or all native <laughs> Alaskan. Like, professionalism is professionalism, yeah. you know, so it shouldn't matter, you know. So I, I would tell them like that. It's like, yeah, I, I see nothing wrong with having, you know, all Asian American yeah. uh, 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 teachers. Administration. You know, administration, uh, te- whatever. You know, I'm like, you know, they, they can teach just as fine as anybody else. This reminds me of, you know, the political quote, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. Oh. And Oof. it is exactly that because when we are not put in positions where we can represent uh, our people and our culture and we are not offered a seat at the table, that's usually at the expense of us. And so it, it brings me great joy that um, Jay Sean wants to be an educator mm-hmm. because I also, uh, I would like to be a professor and, um, so having, you know, I've never had someone that looks like me teach me. And so if no one else is going to be that, then I'll just be that for myself, <laughs> you know. Lead the way. <laughs> so, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when Brown versus the Board of Education, one of the consequences yeah. that isn't talked about much is that um, a lot of the Black kids who were taught at black schools by black teachers, you know, they did very well. They were they were thriving. But then all of a sudden they're being bused to schools with white teachers and those black teachers all lost their jobs because the white schools would not hire them. Yeah, so at least, you know, things were integrated, but they weren't fully integrated the way really integration should happen. Mm-hmm. So these the the black kids were now at schools, you know, with with taught by white teachers and you can imagine they were not treated the same as their white classmates by the white teachers and there's a lot of data to show this this isn't just a presumption this is fact um so there have been a lot of studies even to this day more recent studies but starting back when brown versus the board of education was passed that show you know as exactly as um jay sean you were saying like you were the only one that looked like you in the ap classes and, um, and, and that's exactly as Danielle said, that's not by mistake. That is, that has been very intentional. And, and some of it's because of implicit bias, just, you know, people not realizing right. that they're treating someone differently because of how they look, but, but it happens all the time. I, I really love that each one of you has really talked about this feeling of belonging because it is, it's a lonely place to be. <laughs> and you, I, I don't know, do you, you question yourself too, to some degree, like, am I right? Am I wrong? Do I belong here? What am I doing? And how can we use education to dismantle or deconstruct this, this racism? Trying to use uh, education to, um, to dismantle racism. That is the key is education. But like, 
of the truth. Mm. Um, because you can get educated in a lot of crap. Um, and that's, that's happened. That's the reason why a lot of white folks, um, you know, believe what they believe because I mean, I go back to some of my textbooks (laughs) that Mm. I remember growing up with in middle school in Mississippi and, and some in high school, um, where the only thing about, you know, black folks that was taught was just we were slaves and Martin Luther came King came by and things are all better now, which is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Things. I mean, they're a little bit better. Thank goodness. I'm not in shackles, Mm. but we're still not where we're supposed to be. And I was thinking about, um, somebody shot me. It might've been doc. You, Tony. Oh, uh, maybe. Who shot me uh, the thing about Connecticut? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Uh, you know, they have the, the nation's first, you know, for high school, uh, required, bl- required black studies and uh, Hispanic yeah. studies, right? And what a wonderful thing that would be mm-hmm. um, here in Alaska, right? Because you want to fix the curriculum as a whole, but... If you don't get to all of it, a wonderful thing to do would be to adopt a black studies and uh, Hispanic studies or like a um, Native American studies required, required course. Absolutely. You must take it, all right, in order to graduate um, because what that will do is uh, it will teach the students the truth about um, the history of black people in this country, the history of Hispanic people in this country. So that when they, uh, if they run into um, something that's not the truth in their other courses, like economics or um, what have you. American history. You know, American history, right? Then they will be able to recognize for themselves, you know, where, where the truth is and to be able to speak to that, you know, properly. Uh, on the spot and and call out and then help the educational system too because you, when you have students actually calling out like you know something that's false in a textbook that helps everybody um, or or something that's false that somebody's teaching it helps everybody concerned so if we could get something like that at a bare minimum it would be helpful it would it would at least you know help folks to be able to recognize the truth i think the the caveat or like the real piece or the, the bow to tie that together would be having a uh, instructor who's from that you know minority or who's from that lineage to teach that course yeah. and that was something that i explored in in um at my university just in this past year i took a native american indigenous studies class and i also took a black history class and just like i I can't speak enough to the power of having, you know, those specific instructors for those classes. Like I really learned, I learned things that I should have learned years ago, like, mm-hmm. you know, black wall street, the Tulsa massacre, things of that nature that I share with you, Miss Tony. It's like, these are things that the fact that I'm hearing them at the age of 18 is alarming mm-hmm. because these are big parts of, you know, my, my lineage, my history, but also to hear the plight of the native Americans and to hear mm-hmm. kind of just, how literally America was not only stripped from them, but mm-hmm. how there was an administration basically trying to, 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 to live their life and trying to better their life without even knowing, you know, who they are, or how they go about their life was, 
You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it's just it's so, so did, did you ever wonder like why why was this left out? <laughs> you know, some of the things you All learned. You know, like, why, why was this left? This is so important. You know, uh, for instance, like uh, this lieutenant, we're talking about veterans. They just, it just happened, right? Like, why, why are not our music teachers not celebrating someone like Lieutenant James Reese Europe, who literally, like, came up with jazz? He was, you know, he, he's the Man. one who mixed jazz and blues. I mean, uh, 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 ragtime and blues came up with jazz, took it to the European theater during World War One as part of the first like all black band that toured France and uh, uh, Spain mm-hmm. and, and Italy. Sorry, uh, France and Italy. You know, why are they not teaching stuff like that? Like, mm. yeah, man. You know, this is part of. It's not just Black history. It's Black history is American history. It's it's part of. <laughs> we should all be yeah. doing that stuff. I think the inclusion of certain texts and cultural narratives is absolutely imperative to to learning about you know the true history because it is a part of history. It's not an elective that you know we choose to take to fill our schedule. It should be part of <laughs> like it should be in our textbooks. That I think about how we learn about the Vietnam War, mm. but I have never learned about the contri- the contributions of Hmong people mm. to the U.S. military and the U.S. CIA mm. in Vietnam and Laos. And, you know, when I went to D.C. and saw, went to the, uh, you know, Vietnam Veterans Memorial, not a single person on the plaque shared my last name, even though I know that there are uh, you know, ancestors and, and family members of mine that that died at a rate of 10 times that of the American soldier. Mm. And so including wow. texts from people that have actually experienced it and not, you know, the whitewashed man who is mm. trying to be a white <laughs> savior and mm-hmm. tell the right story, but actually the people that lived it, the people that live it every single day. And it is those cultural narratives that we should be uh, integrating into our classrooms and prioritizing an education and making a part of the core curriculum and not a part of the elective. I think there's a um, process of learning, but it can be also a process of unlearning, mm. like unlearning erroneous Very. things that have been embedded uh, in curriculum and they're part of the predominant narrative. And when it comes to unlearning, especially for grown-ups, it's just a challenging process. Mm-hmm. And unlearning something can be, in fact, more challenging than learning something. Mm-hmm. Both of them are processes, but I'm curious, what's your perspective on that? Of unlearning facts, for instance, are disaligned with the truth. I could, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's like an addiction. I think um, folks are so used to thinking a certain way, you know, you're going to have to have at a minimum engagement from like family members, you know, in, in order to unlearn something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a, an addiction. It's a behavior, right? For instance, I smoked for 15 years. That's a long time. I smoked cigarettes and um, I, I no longer smoke. It's, matter of fact, this Christmas will be, uh, the ten year anniversary of me. Quit. Congratulations! Yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> and but I, I, I say that 
to say that uh, say this that I quit cold turkey, but it was all up here um, because it was it was is I knew that I just had to break that habit because I was doing I was doing things that I didn't realize I was doing. I had I had ended up out the day I quit smoking. I ended up outside with a cigarette in my hand and a lighter in the other, wondering how in the hell did I get here. I don't remember. I was like, I don't remember leaving my desk. Did I talk to anybody on the way outside? I don't know. You know, all I remember is that I'm I'm here now. And it wasn't a bugging. It wasn't people bugging me. It wasn't people nagging me that made me quit. It was me, right? I, I came to the realization myself that something was wrong. I needed to quit. I needed to fix it. And I, each person is going to have to do that for themselves, even – to, to quit those habitual racist things. What can help though, you know, trying to uh, un, un F the system that kind of <laughs> lay down the groundwork for them to have those bad, nasty habits doing racism things, whether they're overt or covert or, you know, like intentional or unintentional racist actions. Um, oh shoot. I almost lost my train of thought on this one, but it was, um, Unlearning. I hate when that happens. It was <laughs> <laughs> happens to me all the time. Perhaps I can I can step in and and uh, you yeah. feel free to interrupt me if uh, if you remember. But um, I think it's I think Jay Sean and I and our generation has the opportunity to take on the torch to build a new system that makes this one obsolete because you know we talk about dismantling it. But we can also talk about just building a whole new one. And obviously, I say that as if, you know, it, it's easy, but um, it will take great dedication and effort. But I remain inspired by my classmates all the time. And Jayshon and I have known each other since uh, since middle school. I don't, I don't know if um, others knew that. And so, um, you know, it's, it's conversations like these where we can connect and, you know, thrive off of each other's interests and, and inspirations because the system is just going to be there from from everything that's led up to it. But we are definitely capable of creating a new one that, that makes this one no longer relevant and, and no longer useful to us. I think I remember what it was. If I if I may. Yeah, absolutely. So, the, the, yeah, the, thank you, and that's a wonderful point, Madison, about um, you know the, about the system because that's what it is. Okay, <clears throat> racism is is a uniquely, at least the the way the, the world's racism operates is a uniquely American invention. All right, and it was built to um, make and build money, make money and build wealth. I'll say that again. Racism was invented to make money and build wealth. And it has been perpetuated to do the exact same thing, right? We, we've fought, various groups have fought racism throughout the years, and we've had some small victories, but it's still there. And, and I brought up my cigarette story, my quitting smoking story, because as an individual, right, I knew that that addiction, that habit, should no longer control who I am and how I act because I couldn't remember how I got outside, right, was not intentional. I just was as force of habit doing it so many times, you know, and that's what the cigarette company wanted me to do. 
right? They made those cigarettes so addictive and they marketed it so great that I had a wonderful habit built up to their benefit to help them make money and build wealth. And it's that same thing that's happening now, right? Um, racism is used now. There's a whole bunch of poor whites in this country that if they were to break that system of racism, they could actually break the backs of like the wealth gap Mm -hmm. in this country. Right. Because at the end of the day, you be, you will be poor or you will be poor you know, and not have anything, not have a dime to, you know, you're in debt. But the one thing you can hold on to is the fact that you're white, mm-hmm. right? And that you, you got that over everybody else. At least I'm white. And that's what a lot of these companies, the richest companies in the world, right? The wealthiest folks in the world, and especially in America, right? They, You'll see it on Newsmax. You'll see it on OAN. You'll see it on Fox News. I mean, and, and a lot of them, you know, CNN too, they're not totally innocent, MSNBC. You'll see it. These little little hints of, of racism here, hints of sexism there as well, because racism and sexism are like the fraternal twins here in America. All right. But they, you'll see the little hints in there and, and that, that'll keep planting those seeds. All right. Of, of uh, uh, you know, of, of racism in people's minds. And that even happens to black people too, that internalize racism. Um, you know, I, I'm guilty of it myself. Uh, and I try to have to break myself free of internalized racism all the time. Um, but yeah, um, but once, I tell you, once white people in America, you know, do that on the individual and then it becomes a collective basis to say no more. Like I said, no more to these cigarettes. You're not going to have any control over my life anymore. And then that's the point where we're going to start making some real big changes in this country. And, and it'll uplift everybody, man. It is, I mean, you know, not everybody, you should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But if you want to try to have some benefit to it, it'll help white people too. <laughs> Right? Getting rid of racism helps white people. <laughs> Maybe that's how we'll convince them. Just imagine. Just imagine if, if like, like uh, uh, slavery, like, was done away with quick and that black folks and women had equal voting rights. Mm-hmm. The whole nine yards from the get-go. Imagine what kind of country. Like, we would be, we would be in flying cars all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, if you if you look at any service, any organization that integrated and that, that was forward thinking, like the military, right? The fighting power of the our United States military when they integrated, jumped by leaps and bounds. Um, uh, the the look shoot, look at any sports team. When as soon as that sports team started integrating, right? The the caliber of the sportsmanship. Uh, went through the roof. Look, look at the NBA. As soon as they started integrating the NBA and started letting black pe- players come in, you know, the, it started really being a money-making machine then, you know, um, when they started having black quarterbacks in the NFL. Baseball it just started skyrocketing, you know, so it benefits everybody. You know, imagine what we could do if we had some black NFL owners. Oh, my goodness. The league might really take <laughs> off. You never know, you know, so – the more people, it will benefit everybody. The more we, um, you know, 
end racism. The sooner we do it, the better. So that's what I had. That that I forgot. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I think time. that's powerful, <laughs> and I think there were a lot of like little free kind of what I like to call like free nuggets and <laughs> everything that everyone said, because it's like this idea of addiction is so powerful because like you said, you can't kick an addiction until you acknowledge that it's there. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the power of racism because a lot of people, you know, like everyone said, a lot of the time it's so it's, it's covert and overt, but it's also so normalized. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and that's yeah, not only yeah. from like the little jokes or whatever, but it's just like, Sometimes you don't understand that, hey, I'm accepting someone belittling me right now. Mm-hmm. Or like, hey, like, you know, in Madison, I know you can attest to this. <laughs> Sometimes you sit in a classroom or you, you sit and you have a conversation with a peer or whatever, and you hear, you know, something that's not true. You know, no matter if that's sitting in a history class and you hear, you know, this, this, this or whatever. And it's hard to detest your teachers. It's mm-hmm. hard to, to say to an adult, to a trusted friend that, hey, that's, that's not true. That's not okay. You know? But in reality, like, those are the things that we have to start doing. And I yeah. think, you know, to to answer the question, Ms. Simonetta, I think the, the way that we have to go about breaking this addiction is first admitting that it's there, you know, admitting mm. that we have it, you know. And specifically something that's been going around that I don't like to hear is that, you know, people say, oh, I don't see color. I don't see mm-hmm. difference. No, like, you have to acknowledge that. Like, no, mm-hmm. we are different. <laughs> you know, you come from a different background. Don't tell me that you don't see it. No, tell me you see it. Acknowledge it, please, so that we can move on and figure out how to to go about that change. And that's why I think education plays a role. Because, you know, I've had, um, I can name off the top of my head four great teachers that I've had. And each of them kind of gave me the same message from Bartlett. And that was education opens doors for your own understanding. Mm-hmm. Education is so powerful you know, and not, I'm not talking about just sitting there reading books and doing assignments. No, not busy work, like <laughs> actual education, like actual things that you learn that you can apply to your life. And they're so powerful because once you learn something, you, not only can you, you know, you're able to kind of teach others, but now you know what's true and what's not. You don't have to lean on someone else's understanding. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a follower. No, you can be a free thinking person. And I think that's the problem with, you know, uh, specifically kind of America right now. We've, we've broken the mold of what education actually should be and what education actually is. Mm-hmm. And we've made it this watered down version of busy work. Mm. We've kind of took, mm, we've, wow. we've made it from like, hey, you're learning something in school that's going to, man, I, I forget who I learned it from, but apparently, you know, many years ago, there used to be this way in school where you could learn like jobs in school and you can take those jobs and you can go into the yeah. real world with them. And my dad and, and my parents, and I'm hearing this from people, you know, because, again, I'm from the South. And I'm like, there's no way. Like, you know, I believe y'all, you know, respectfully. But I'm like, no way. And it, it's yeah. crazy because it's oh, like. Oh, tech when I was growing up. <laughs> we, but, you know, but it's crazy because we learn now that education is, hey, sitting here, read this book, do book work. And I'm a fan of podcasts. I've never been an avid reader. I can read a little bit, you know, but <laughs> I've never been a big reader. But, um. I think the moment that we take education and we go back to kind of learning fundamental things, like things that, you know, and I'm not saying everything has to go, but things that are actually going to affect you and change, you know, the way that you perceive the world. That's when I think we'll be able to break the addiction because that's at the point where we'll admit that there is a problem, you know, and that's why I love what Madison said about how, you know, her and my generation is leading the torch or passing the torch and kind of leading the charge because it's like, yes, we're doing that, but we've been shown it 
uh, from those before us. Like we've been shown that, hey, like there's here's the blueprint. We just kind of <laughs> somewhere between the past generation and us, it got messed up. But now we're able to go back to those things and say, hey, I'm a black educator or hey, I'm an Asian American educator. This is what I learned. This is my history. This is your history. This is how we can change the future. You know what I mean? And I think that's the yeah. power. And I think that's honestly the way that we break addiction with education. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Something something that I want to pull from that Jay Sean said is, you know, he is absolutely right. I have been in a classroom where I've heard things and it's just sketchy and you're not sure what to do about the mm-hmm. situation. But <laughs> part of, part of, you know, breaking the addiction as, as we go along with this, um, with this really good metaphor is being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's, you're not going to be comfortable in, you know, if, if we are comfortable, then we are complacent. And so it takes Powerful. just, you know, being fully uncomfortable in situations and saying that's actually not okay to say. And even if it is, you know, people older than us that we are expected to respect. And, you know, I think that we should, we have an obligation to call people out on their lack of humanity because it's complacency and comfort are two poisons that just continue to feed into um, the system and and do nothing to, to combat against it and do nothing to, to work to dismantle it, but just allow it to thrive as people understand that if nothing, if no one says anything against them, then what they're saying must hold true and what they're saying is right. And they will not be challenged in the future again. So we have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. That that. that problem is complicity. Yeah. I think that uh, it is true. Becoming comfortable, being uncomfortable it is important for the learning process. Mm-hmm. And learning is a process. And when it stops being a process and becomes stagnant, it isn't learning anymore. So I like what you're saying. I really appreciate all of your perspectives. Um, unfortunately, we're about uh, almost to end this uh, conversation. We're near to our close. And... Um, We usually close by asking our guests, do you have any advice um, for people who are listening, people, um, young people or people of all ages, um, specifically thinking about racism in in education? Um, Yeah, I I would say to to this generation, the way Jay Sean had put it and Madison had put it is wonderful. Like, this generation, their generation is, is really leading the way. Mm-hmm. You know, every movement throughout history has been led by young folks. And now is no different. I, I, I looked at the March on Washington. I, I saw that with uh, uh, um, Reverend Al uh, Sharpton, you know, in the National Action Network when they were marching on Washington. Uh, for, for police, you know, protect, protest police brutality. And I saw one sign in that audience. It just kind of encapsulated the whole thing. Um, I'm editing, I'm censoring for radio, but it said, you <laughs> with the wrong generation. Mm. And that, I was like, yeah, I think they did. Um, I think this generation is going to um, 
you know, if not carry us over the finish line, get us damn close. And I would just say, keep going. Um, don't stop. You know what's right. So, you know, uh, I we're here. The you know older generations are here to guide. But if you need us, you know, we got you. We'll give you a holly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I I think for me, my my biggest advice would be to demand a seat at the table. And once you're there, know that you did, in fact, work a hundred times harder to get at that table than probably everyone else around you. And know that with that in mind, you belong at that at that table. Absolutely. No question about it. Wow, I mean, that's powerful in itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if I had to give any advice, you know, to anyone else, it would pretty much be that same thing, kind of that understand that, hey, if you, when you get to the table, you know, keep going. Like, that's not the end of it. You know what I mean? Like, a seat at the table is great, but just know that your presence there shows that there needs to be, you know, another door open. You know, just being in that conversation, being in that atmosphere if you can do that, open the door for someone else as well. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, also, you know, kind of a thing of advice to, to give to anyone is just understanding that you're not alone in this either. You know, that I know it's hard being a first year or a first generation college student. I know a lot of it, everyone on the podcast can kind of attest to that as well. But just understand that, hey, you know, what you're doing now is so much bigger than the struggles and, and then the problems that you're going to encounter. Just, just even, you know, maybe not even if you set whatever goal and you achieve that goal, just the, the fact that you're thinking about that and the fact that you're putting in the work and getting in the steps and getting there. That's powerful.